I should like to call your attention this evening to the third and fourth verses in the first psalm. The first psalm, verses three and four. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Let me refresh your memories, most of you, with regard to what we were considering last Sunday evening, namely the first two verses of this psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now uh, we uh, resume our study of this psalm. As I say, we considered the first two verses together last Sunday evening, and I would say again what I said on that occasion, namely, that our chief reason, of course, for considering it is that it deals with the problem, the question that is uppermost in the minds of everybody, and that is the desire to be happy. And here we read, blessed, oh, the blessedness, or oh, the happiness of the men that walketh not, etc., in the counsel of the ungodly. Very well, here is a psalm that uh, comes to us and speaks to us about the thing that is uppermost in the mind and the heart of everybody. Now, here is something that can be said universally of everybody. You can't say every, that about all things. We differ in many respects, but there's one thing that brings the whole of humanity to a common denominator, and that is the desire to be happy. Some people have strange ways of showing that desire, but they've got it. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be miserable. Whatever their form, whatever the method, doesn't matter. This is universal. And the Bible, of course, claims that it is a universal book for that reason. It's the textbook of life. It's the manual of the soul. It's the book that deals with man and his whole state and condition as he passes through this world of time. And as I was saying last Sunday night, uh, I make no apology for calling your attention to this whole problem of men and of happiness in terms of uh, the Bible, uh, in terms of a first psalm in an Old Testament, for the simple reason that until mankind has discovered happiness apart from this, well, I'll go on preaching this. And that means that I'll go on until I die and others will go on after I've gone, because men, according to this book, will never find happiness, apart from the way that is indicated here. So it is a perennial truth 
It's always a contemporary message. This book never dates. It's the most up-to-date book in the world tonight. All the other teachings and philosophies are constantly being put on the scrap heap, out of date. What do you think of the science of 50 years ago? What about the philosophy of 50 years ago? All this is now laughed at, ridiculed, forgotten, thrown into the limbo of things long since forgotten. But here is a message that's still contemporary. And the reason for that, as we saw, is that it is indeed the word of God. And the man who finds happiness is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates in it day and night. Now then, the case put forward here, you see, is this. That people are not happy and man doesn't find happiness because he always seeks it in the wrong way. He tends to make it an end in and of itself. He seeks happiness directly. And according to this book, uh, that is something that can never be done. You live for happiness and you'll never find it. Happiness is a byproduct. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things shall be added unto you. That's the order. Blessed are they that who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Nobody else. They are the people who get happiness. Not the people who seek happiness, the people who seek righteousness. Now, here's a very fundamental point, of course. That's the great message, as I try to show, of the first uh, two verses. Man uh, always makes the mistake of uh, approaching it directly. He has never yet learned uh, that in the spiritual realm, as in the military realm, the best strategy is generally what is called the strategy of the indirect approach. It's always true in the Bible. Indirect approach. Seek righteousness, you'll get happiness. Seek happiness, you won't get it. And the second big mistake that man makes is that he uh, constantly thinks that happiness is something dependent upon circumstances. And that's about the greatest fallacy of all. If happiness is dependent upon circumstances, well, then... There will never be such a thing as happiness in this world, but we are told here there is. Blessed is the man. But it's a happiness that is independent of circumstances. I was saying that jocularly to the deacons before we came into this service tonight. Should we have brought in the piano? What if the power fails and the organ doesn't work? I said, thank God. Our faith, our religion is one that is not dependent finally upon buildings, organs, power, or anything else. It comes from the heart, you see. So that if all power is shut off, we can still go on praising God. We are not dependent upon circumstances in any shape or form. One of these hymns has been putting that again, that the second hymn that we, that, that we sang, and even the first one, we don't rear earthly tabernacles. We are dependent upon the power of God, the power of the Spirit. But now man doesn't realize this. He always thinks that it's a question of circumstances and conditions. And that's his second great and fatal blunder. And here we are shown the fallacy of all that. And that we must realize that our happiness is something that is ultimately dependent upon our relationship to God and the state and the condition of our own soul. Now that's the big thing that we've already seen this man telling us 
in the first two verses of this psalm of his. Well, now the Bible does its utmost to bring this home to us. It says everywhere that uh, it alone has true happiness to give us. And it goes on to say that it's also a lasting happiness. Not something that comes and then you've suddenly lost it, just when you think you've got it. No, that's the happiness of the world, so-called. doesn't last. But here is a happiness that is true. And because it is true, it is something that lasts and continues and abides whatever may chance to come across our path. Well, now then, here is the great question. Why doesn't man believe this? And then go on to experience this blessedness, this happiness that it talks about. Well, I want to put it like this this evening. There are two main explanations of this. And one is that man is so terribly ignorant about himself. He doesn't see himself as he really is. You see, because of that, he starts on a false assumption. He generally starts on the assumption that he himself is all right and that the trouble is somebody else or something else. Well, now he's already gone wrong. And while he's wrong like this at the very beginning and in the foundation, of course he can't hope ever to arrive at true happiness. He must learn the truth about himself. And he'll never learn that except, as he believes, this law of the Lord, this message which we have in this book which we call the Bible. There is nothing under the heavens tonight that tells us the truth about ourselves save this book. But you see, here's mankind reading newspapers. You'll never know the truth about yourself there. Well, well, for this reason, that though in a sense the very newspapers are telling you the truth about yourself, it's put in a form in which man is pleased with it and enjoys it and is entertained by it instead of being convicted by it. He should be convicted by it. Any man who reads his newspapers today should feel a terrible sense of conviction. As a man reads about the nations piling up armaments, quarreling as he reads about disputes in this country, we should all be heartily ashamed. We should feel convicted of sin. We should say, what's the matter with men? That he behaves in such a manner, and I'm a man. Well, it's in me. What's the matter with us? The very facts and circumstances should convict us of sin, but they don't. They don't, you see, because we always say it's somebody else. Never ourselves. It never comes home to us. Now the Bible brings it home to us. It addresses us directly and individually and puts the plain and varnished truth about ourselves to us directly and immediately. We need that. Man's ignorant about himself. And the second thing he's ignorant about is the true nature of the Christian life. And this, of course, is the tragedy of tragedies. There are these two reasons why people don't believe this Christian message, this Christian faith. In addition to being wrong about themselves, they're wrong about the faith. They think they know what it is, but they don't know what it is. There is this fundamental misconception and misunderstanding with regard to the nature of the Christian message and of the whole of the Christian life. Now then, what the Bible does in the light of these two uh, great and uh, fundamental and initial errors and fallacies is this. 
It keeps on putting the two things together before us. That's why it's such a wonderful book. There's no end to the ways in which it does it. That's the proof that it's God's book. It gives it as direct teaching. Then it says, well, if you can't take it like that, take it in a picture. Take it in an illustration. Take it in a bit of history. That's why it gives us all this history. It says, look at that man. Look how he started. Look how he ended. If you won't believe the teaching, look at this man's life. There it is for you. There it is in a picture. There it is represented in a bit of sheer human history. Facts. And then it takes up these comparisons. These illustrations. Now, all these are simply given to us in the great goodness and kindness and compassion of God in an endeavor to bring the truth home to us simply and directly. And that is what we have in this first psalm, undoubtedly written by David, moved by the Holy Spirit to do so. David was anxious to give this message to his contemporaries. And he says, listen. There are two types of men in this world, and only two, the godly and the ungodly. And you see, he says, happiness depends upon whether you're godly or ungodly. That's the thing. And he seems to be saying, well, now how can I bring this truth home to the people? Tells us in general in the first two verses some of the obvious uh, characteristics of these two men. This godly man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Well, what does he do? Well, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's how he spends his time. That's what he does. That's how he occupies himself. He meditates in it day and night. Yes, all right, says David. But that isn't enough. People are blind. They can't see this. They can't see the truth about themselves. They can't see the truth about godliness. How can I put it to them? So he goes on. And here, you see, he implies an illustration. He brings forward a picture in order to try to help us to see the essence of this matter. Truth about ourselves, the truth about the godly or the Christian men. And you see, this is the picture that he uses. He says the difference between the godly and the ungodly is the difference between a tree and chaff. He pictures a tree by the side of a river. And then there's a heap of chaff. And he says, now then, if you can't see it in terms of direct teaching, when I talk about the counsel of the ungodly and the way of sinners and the seat of the scornful, well, he says, try and look at it like this. What I'm trying to say, he says, is that the difference between these two men is the difference between a tree and a heap of chaff. Very well, my friends, uh, if you are concerned, as you are concerned, about this whole problem of life and of living and of happiness and of peace and of joy, the first question I really have to ask, and indeed it's the only question I have to ask this evening, is this. What are you like? What's your life like? Are you like a tree? Or are you like a heap of chaff? It's one or the other. This godly man is like a tree planted by the water, rivers of water. Bringeth forth fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're not like that. Well, what are they like? Oh, he says, but are like the chaff. 
which the wind driveth away. Well, this to me is a tremendous thing. We are only in this world once. What's more important than that every one of us should know at this moment what kind of a person we are? What's your life like? I asked it at the beginning of 1963. I don't care how long you've lived. What's your life like? Does it resemble a tree? Does it resemble a heap of chaff? Now then, let's work this out together. There's nothing more important than this. I don't care what's going to happen in 1963 in the last analysis. Oh, but there's somebody that's callous. What I mean is this. I don't care in this matter of my own condition and my own fundamental happiness. If my happiness is contingent upon things that may or may not take place, well, then I haven't got any happiness and I'll never have it. Happiness, blessedness, is that, I say, which renders a man immune to the changing scenes of time and the vicissitudes and the circumstances and accidents of life. So I say there's nothing more important than this. Well, very well then, let's examine it. The first thing I find is this. That the difference between these two kinds of life, these two kinds of life, is a very profound difference. You see, I say the whole trouble is that people don't know the truth about themselves and they don't know the truth about Christianity. And that's the initial trouble, that they don't realize that the difference between the two is a profound difference, is a radical difference. What they tend to think uh, is this, of course, that the uh, difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian is only one of degree. That all men are really one and are all really alike, except that there are certain particular difficulties. Difference of degree. The Christian, they say, is a man who doesn't do certain things that the other man does, and he does certain things that the other man doesn't do. But there's no essential difference. Now, the world always objects to this notion that there is an essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. So he tends to think that a man makes himself a Christian by taking New Year resolutions, deciding to drink less or do something else less, and improve himself a bit and try to do a little more good. He makes himself a Christian. He's improving himself. You see, it's only a question of a slight change. It's an adaptation. It's a, a slight modification. An improvement of what we once were. Or they may go further and think that uh, the Christian is a man who has added something to his life which he didn't have before and which the man who's not a Christian still hasn't got. But he essentially is still the same man, but he's added something to himself. I sometimes put it like this. I get the impression that many people think that the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that it's like a book, you see. Two books, if you like. There's one. Uh, the main body of the book is the same in both cases. Well, what's the difference? Ah, uh, one of them's got an appendix to the book. And in the appendix he says that he's a Christian. He's exactly the same as the other men in every other respect. If you meet him from Monday to Saturday night, there's no difference. Sunday, ah, oh, this man goes to church, the other man doesn't. That's in the appendix. Something he adds on. Does this peculiar thing. 
uh, once a week and the other man doesn't do it. Otherwise, there's nothing in it really, except that he tries to live a better life and so on. Now, that is the common notion with regard to this whole matter. That's the difference between the Christian, the godly man, and the non-Christian, the ungodly, is a, is a very slight one, and is simply a difference in certain respects. Well, I needn't keep you, surely, if this picture of ours tonight gives the lie direct to that once and forever. We haven't got a comparison here between two trees. We've got a comparison between a tree and a heap of chaff. There's nothing in common at all. What he's emphasizing is the altogether entire difference. It isn't the difference between an oak tree and a larch. It isn't the difference between an oak tree and an apple tree. It isn't the difference between some majestic pine and some blackthorn or something like that. No, no. He's not comparing trees. He's comparing a tree with chaff. And he does that, of course, in order to bring this point perfectly clearly before our minds that the difference is as deep and as radical and as essential as a difference can possibly be. We say it's the difference between chalk and cheese. Well, the difference between a tree and a heap of chaff is even bigger than that. The fact is, he says, there is nothing common at all to the two. It is a complete contrast. Now, I wonder whether we'd all realized that. Had we realized that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not a matter of conduct and of behavior. It is the difference of nature. Now, that's all important, you see, for this reason. That many an ungodly man can live quite a good life, morally, ethically judged. There are many doing that. There are many very good people in the world tonight. Good from the standpoint, I say, of morals and of social customs and habits, doing good and so on. There are many people in the world tonight who are very good in that sense, who are not Christians at all. Well, why do you say they're not Christians, says someone? Well, my main reason is this. They haven't got the same nature as the Christian. The Bible's full of this sort of thing. If you judge a man by the usual canons of judgment applied by men to one another, you would undoubtedly come to the conclusion that Esau was a much nicer and a much better man than Jacob. Seems as we put it to be a more decent fellow. Seems to have better traits and characteristics in his personality. And yet, you see, the Bible says that the man who was loved by God was Jacob, why, well, the nature. God doesn't judge by the outward appearance. God judges by the heart. God's interested in what a man is, not simply in what he does. The rank is but the guinea stamp. A man's a man for all that, says Robert Burns, and I apply his message in this much higher and spiritual sense. That's it. It isn't the appearance, it isn't the veneer that a man can put on. It's what he is, what's his nature, what is he in the depths and the vitals of his being. Now, that is the thing I say that is brought out so wonderfully by our comparison here tonight. Are you a tree 
Or are you like a heap of chaff? Collection of particles, nondescript as I'm going to show you. Now, that I may prove my contention, turn over to the New Testament and what you find. Well, the New Testament, in showing the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, puts it in terms like these. It says that a Christian is a man who is born again. Now, there's the same radical point. Before you can become a Christian, said our Lord to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus patently thought that it was the question of adding on to what he'd got. He goes to our Lord seeking his interview, and he says, Master, I've been watching you and listening to you. You're much further advanced than I am, though I'm a master of Israel. What is this extra? Not a question of extras, says our Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the men be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a rebirth that's necessary. These are the New Testament terms. A regeneration. Got to be generated anew. There was nothing there. There's to be an act of generation. There's to be a kind of conception. Leading to a birth. Nothing less than that. Look at its other terms. It talks about a new creation. If any man be in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, he's a new creation. He isn't just a little bit better than he was. He isn't slightly different from the man who's not a Christian. He's a new creature, a new creation. The God who created at the beginning has created something new here that wasn't there before. Now, that's the way the New Testament puts it. You see, David puts it in a familiar illustration. But he's really got the whole truth, hasn't he? He's got the principle. He puts it pictorially. There, you've got it explicitly in the teaching of the New Testament. But it's exactly the same thing. And take one other further illustration of this in the New Testament. It's the difference, says Paul to the Ephesians, between death and life. You, as he quickened, were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Birth. Life. That's the contrast. Well, here it is before us this evening in terms of a contrast between a tree growing by the side of a river and just a heap of chaff. Well, now then, having established that this is a very profound difference, I want to take you through the details of the difference. My friend, I'm doing this, and I'm going into the details because I want you to be a happy man and woman. I want you to be a blessed person. And thank God I've got a message that can do that. I'm not doing it. I'm simply here as a mouthpiece. I'm simply here to show you what David puts before us here in this wonderful illustration as the Spirit of God will enable me to do so. I say to you that if your life is nothing but chaff, you'll never be happy. Indeed, you'll be eternally miserable if you go out of this world like that. Nothing is more important than that you should see the truth about yourself. Listen, therefore, to the difference as it is worked out by this comparison. The ungodly is like a heap of chaff. The other man's like a tree. What's the difference? Well, here's the first thing. The ungodly is nothing but a relic. 
is nothing but a remnant. He is nothing but a ruins. He is nothing but a wreck. What do you mean, sir, someone? Well, I simply ask you a question. What is chaff? Do you know what chaff is? Well, chaff is that which remains when you've taken the grain out. There's your grain, you see, surrounded by this covering. The grain is the kernel, and round it is this covering, this integument, as it were, this husk. And then in the process of winnowing or threshing, what you do is you take out the grain with its food and its life and its value and its power. And what's left, the refuse, is what is called the chaff. So what David is telling us about this man who is an ungodly man, who is not a Christian, is that he is nothing but a relic. He is nothing but a husk. He is nothing but a covering. He is that which is left when everything that is vital and is of value is gone. See, it's a very wonderful picture, this. The Bible, when you turn to its great doctrinal statements, puts all that like this. It says, what is the truth about men in sin? Why is it that people are not blessed? Why is it that people are not happy? Well, says the Bible, the answer is this. Man has fallen. He was there, he's now here. He's fallen. Man, what's the matter with him? He is a lost soul. He's lost his soul. What's the matter with him? He's lost his life. Man is dead in trespasses and in sins. He's nothing but the husk. The kernel's gone. He's nothing but the integument, the outer covering. Oh, the valuable thing itself. It's gone. Refuse. Now, what it all means, my dear friend, is this. That man, as he is by nature and as he's born into this world, is not real man at all. The greatest thing, the most wonderful thing, the noblest thing about man, as God originally created him, has gone. Do you think that God made men and women as they're to be seen in this world at this moment? Is that God's creation? Look at that poor, helpless drunkard. Look at that poor person who's fallen into some other sin. Look at the miser. Look at the ambitious person. Did God create such things? And of course he didn't. God never created men like that. That's the husk. That's the refuse. That's the chaff. The vital thing that makes man man is not there. It's gone. Lost. The soul is lost. That's why the Son of God, when he was in this world, said, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. The precious grain. What is this? Well, you see, as God made men, he made him in his own image. And it's the image that's been lost. Man was made by God and for God. He was made in the image and likeness of God. What's that? Well, that was man's relationship to God. Man was made as the companion of God. Man was like God. He was made upright. He was given an original righteousness. 
like that of God himself. He enjoyed God and companionship with God and fellowship with God. Man had got a spiritual faculty. He was never happier than when he was in that spiritual realm having communion with God. The word of God and the things of God, they were his great delight. But man has fallen, you see, isn't like that. That's exactly what's gone. The original righteousness, where is it? The enjoyment of God, where is it? The spiritual faculty, the spirit and the faculty divine that the poet speaks of, where is it? I ask you directly, is it in you, my friend, or have you lost it? Is there nothing left but chaff, the outward covering, the mere integument? Oh, I mustn't keep you, but what David is saying here is this. It's the message of the whole Bible. As you look at man as he is in sin, man as the result of the fall, what you're seeing is nothing but the covering, the integument. You're seeing nothing but the body, and the kind of body and psychical life. That's the life man is living today. It's not a spiritual life. It's a psychical life. It's not surprising, you see, that some of these scientists say that man is nothing but an animal. You look at man as he is in sin and you see nothing but an animal. You look at man as he is today, you see nothing but an animal that lives to eat and to drink and to indulge his sex. I really don't see much difference. The way people are living is very reminiscent of the farmyard. Indeed, it's very reminiscent sometimes even of the jungle. But that isn't man. That's the refuse. That's the chaff. That's the husk. That's nothing but the ruins. That's not man. The big thing, the great thing, the thing that came from God is the thing that's been lost. It's gone. There's nothing left but ruins. So you see a writer of a hymn once offered up a prayer, and he said, The ruins of my soul repair and reign without a rival there. Or an old Puritan living 300 years ago, he said, Man, as the result of the fall and, like, and as the result of sin, he said, is like many an old castle or a great old house that you can see sometimes in the country. You go along a road and you see a ruins. It's grown over with ivy and with moss and all sorts of things, and obvious ruins, and you go off the main road and you examine this, and there you see a tablet, and on the tablet you read, so-and-so, once upon a time, lived here. It was once the ancestral home of some great noblemen. Nothing now but a mass of ruins, with the children pray playing in it, and the walls fallen down, and all the moss and the ivy, and all the encumbrances, and the nettles, and the thorns, Yet the tablet says, so-and-so once lived here. And said the old Puritan, that's man. He's nothing but a ruins, and there's a notice on the ruins which says, God once lived here. God once lived here. The image of God was once here. This was a noble creature as that was once a noble building. But you're not seeing the real thing, you're seeing the ruins. God once lived here. But you see, this is it. Here's men as the result of sin and of the fall. 
He is nothing but a remnant, a relic, a ruin. Chaff. Without the wheat, without the kernel, without the germ, without the life. But the Christian is like a tree. I'm not going to tell you so much about the Christian tonight. I want anybody who's in this service who's not a Christian to see himself as he is. You won't believe in Christ until you've seen your need of him. You won't believe in Christ until you see the ruins that you are. You won't turn to Christ and believe this gospel until you've seen that you're nothing but chaff. A refuse, a relic, a ruin. But just notice it in passing. A tree is an organism, isn't it? It's a whole. It's not a mere remnant and relic. There's a wholeness about a tree. And that is the essential difference between the ungodly and the godly. But let me hurry to a second point. The second thing about that mass, that heap of chaff there, is that it's got no form at all. It's just a mass, a formless mass, a heap, a refuse of just to the scrapings and the shavings, as it were, of the husk. And there it is in a pile and in a heap. It looks like this now. It won't look like that in five minutes. The wind will have moved it a little. There it is, a formless, shapeless mass. And that's the ungodly, says this man. The truth about men in sin is that he's lost his character. It's difficult to define him. There's no pattern to his life. He's always changing. You never know what he's going to believe. You never know what he's going to do. Why? Well, because there's no form about his life at all. There's no governing principle. And that is why it's so difficult to define such a person. You see, the Bible says we're all either godly or ungodly, but then look at the ungodly. What a difference there is between them. From your great philosopher to your man who doesn't think at all, from your highly respectable person to the profligate sinner, all ungodly. What a mess it is. What a formless, shapeless mess. There's no rhyme or reason. You can't really define it, but there it is. It's just a conglomeration of scraping. There's no form, there's no beauty, there's no symmetry. But look at this tree for a moment, what a difference. This is the godly man, he's like a tree. And the whole point about a tree is that it has form. Up it comes, the trunk and the branches. You've noticed the symmetry, haven't you? There's nothing more beautiful than a tree. I'm one of those people who says that a tree is much more beautiful than flowers, doesn't matter. You have, have your own opinion about that, but oh, examine trees. And look at the form and the beauty and the balance and the symmetry, the consistency, as it were, that is so characteristic of it. Now, this is the truth about the godly man. He's not something indefinable. A Christian is not a man who's got some vague, nice feelings within him and who feels now and again like doing a bit of good. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not a formless, shapeless collection of nice feelings and sentiments. It is definable, easily recognizable. It's like the tree. There is a balance about the life of the Christian. He has got a doctrine, he's got a practice. He's got an understanding, he's got an emotion. This is the great characteristic of this man who is godly, who is in Christ, and who belongs to the realm of the spiritual and the unseen. I'm simply giving you some headings. Work them out for yourselves. Is there form in your life? 
Is there a shape to it? Is there consistency? Is there balance? Is there beauty? Ask yourself that simple question. What is my life? Can I tell? Can I say? Can I give an account of it or cannot I? It's one or the other. Let me hurry on. The third point is this. Another very striking difference between that tree and this heap of chaff is this. That that tree has got roots. The heap of chaff hasn't. There it is. Somebody's brushed it together. There it is lying on the surface. It's not attached. Everything's moving. Breathe on it and you make it move. If the wind comes, well, this man says it's gone. Chaff, which the wind driveth away. Doesn't drive away a tree because it's got roots. Now, here is a tremendously important point. The whole tragedy about the man who's not godly, who's not a Christian, is that he's rootless. Or if you prefer it, he's got no foundations. It's a superficial life. It's a light one, all on the surface. Of course, it can be made to look attractive. An artist can do something even with a heap of chaff. But you see, it's still all on the surface, all light. There are no really fixed principles there. There is nothing established. Now, I could easily demonstrate all I'm saying. What do you really know about life? What do you know about death? How do you meet the possible things that may happen in 1963? These are the questions. Now, I say that this is the truth about the godless man. He's got no roots. He is utterly insecure. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And when it does happen, he doesn't know what to do about it. A wind of change can change him. He is subject to it all. It's all contingent. It all depends. Oh, there are thousands of men in this city of London tonight like that. There's many a poor wife tonight expecting her husband home. And this is all she can say. If he doesn't meet so-and-so, he'll be home at this time. If he does meet so-and-so, I don't know when I may see him. He's rootless. He's all on the surface. It depends whether the wind blows, who's the meat, what may happen to him. All these things determine his life. Ah, this godless life, it's an insecure one. It's a life that's always changing. You find these people change their views, they change their ideas, they change their cults, they change their religions. Like we are told of those people that whom Paul found at Athens, there they were in Athens, the Stoics and the Epicureans, the most sophisticated people of the first century. They spent all their time in telling or hearing some new thing. And the clever people who are godless are still doing that. Have you heard this? Have you heard the latest? And there's some new cult, some new treatment, some new idea. After it they go. Then it doesn't work, they try the other. Always spending their time in hearing or telling about some new thing. Like the chaff. Rootless. No foundations to their lives. Well, the Christian, the godly men is altogether different. You see, this man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. So we are told about him in the New Testament that he is rooted and grounded in the faith. And this is something that needs to be emphasized at this present time. 
The Christian is not just a nice man, he's not just a good man, he's not just a man who has pleasant and happy feelings. The Christian is a man who is rooted and grounded in the faith. The Christian is a man who knows what he believes and he knows whom he believes. I grieve to have to say it, but I don't care who says it on a television interview or anywhere else. A man who says that a Christian is just a man who recognizes the ethical teaching of Christ and then does his best to follow it, is a man who knows nothing about Christianity. Whatever position he may have held in the Christian church before he retired. A Christian is a man who believes a body of doctrine. It's like a tree. It's got roots. It's held by something. It's fixed to something. The tendrils are grasping something. That's why it's not carried away by the wind, you see. A Christian is a man who believes a body of doctrine. And the body of doctrine doesn't stop at believing in God. Because some say that you don't even need to believe that. That you can look forward to meeting atheists in heaven. Where do we come to, my dear friends? That's chaff. That's chaff to say that a man can believe or disbelieve anything he likes in this world and still go to heaven. That's to say that the chaff becomes a tree. That there's no difference. It's a lie. It's not true. It's the difference between chaff and tree. And the tree has got its roots. And the roots are fixed. Rooted and grounded in the faith. What is this faith? Oh, it's the faith in the Son of God. It is the faith that says that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. It says that he was born of a virgin. It was a miraculous birth. He had no human father. It was a unique act of God. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, conceived of the Holy Ghost. It says that he proved that by his miracles and by his teaching. It says that he went to the cross on Calvary deliberately because it was the only way whereby he could save us. That he took our sins upon himself and bore their punishment. That our guilt was laid on him and God smote our guilt in him, punished him for us and thereby gives us free forgiveness. It believes that a man becomes a Christian not as the result of his good life or his good deeds but because he believes that Christ died for him and rose again and God puts Christ's righteousness upon him. That's what it believes. Believes in the resurrection. Of course it does. The literal, physical, bodily resurrection. It believes in the person of the Holy Spirit and that he was sent upon the church on the day of Pentecost. These are the things onto which the roots of this man cling and are entwined about them and holds on to them and out of which everything else comes. There are roots in the Christian. There's nothing in the chapter. The chaff doesn't know what it believes. It doesn't know where it is. And that's why it's always changing. And that's why it's always insecure. The other man, you see, is entirely different. Let every man, says the Apostle Peter, be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in him. Come, my friends. We are living in a dying world. I've read again this week, as probably some of you have done, 
that the leading scientists who recently held a conference on their own, they came to a majority decision. This isn't my view, this is the view of some of the most leading scientists in the world today, who are not Christians. They came to the solemn conclusion, the majority of them, that this world of ours has not got another ten years to go. Very well, I say. I can't afford to take risks. I'll have to give an account of my stewardship, of my preaching. I may be asked about your soul. Did I make it plain and clear to you? What I'm asking you, therefore, is this. You say you're like a tree and that you don't belong to the chaff. Well, then I ask you, do you believe the things I've been putting before you? And do you believe that unless a man does believe those things, he is not a Christian? However good he may be, however moral, however much good he may do, however wonderful his philosophy may be, if he doesn't believe the bare essentials, the irreducible minimum of this Christian faith, he is chaff and nothing but chaff. The godless man has no roots. The tree has roots. Then another thing I'd ask you to consider and to work out for yourselves is this. The difference between a heap of chaff and a tree is the difference between lifelessness and life. There's no life in a heap of chaff, and you'll never get growth in a heap of chaff. You can leave it there on the ground for a thousand years. It won't add to itself. Why, it's got no life in it. But a tree, why, the whole thing about a tree is that it's got life in it and it can grow, but not so that chaff. The chaff, I say, is the same at the end as it was at the beginning. Well, that isn't quite true. It's worse. A lot of dirt and mud gets attached to it. Bits of it are blown about. All sorts of things are added to it. But there's never any improvement. There's never anything better. Well, no, that's what the Bible says about man in sin. doesn't matter what he does. He doesn't improve himself. He doesn't add to himself. He doesn't grow. He doesn't develop. What, you say, are you talking about science? Are you talking about music and art? I am. I tell you that if a man doesn't know this truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus, he will end where he began. No, that's not true. He'll be worse than when he began. The wise man Solomon in writing Ecclesiastes put it, didn't he? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But the poets have said it. Listen to Wordsworth saying it. You see, all these poets, they're all suffering from nostalgia. The greatest English poets generally look back across their lives. Oh, they said that I was still the man I once was. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, at that elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire nakedness. And not in utter, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness. Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. The youth who daily from the east must travel still is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away. 
and fade into the light of common day. Oh, that I could go back, says the poet, the nostalgia. I'm not the man I once was. Where is the dream? Where is the ecstasy? Where is the man I once set out as? What's happened to him? Oh, he says, I seem to be losing. Change and decay in all around I see. There's no progress. There's no development. There's no possibility of growth. Chaff can't grow. It can't develop. It can't add to itself. It must be worse. Dust, mud, mire are added to it. There it is. And so these great poets say about life, you see, supporting the teaching of the Bible. All your great vast knowledge and learning, where does it bring you? Does it really help you to live? Does it really help you to be a man? Does it really help you to die? Does it throw any light upon eternity? Look at your great men dying. And then watch them even as they're decaying before they die. They're objects of misery and compassion. And we feel like saying, oh, what a pity he doesn't go before he'll be too sad even to look at. Chaff? That's chaff, you see. You never speak like that about a tree, do you? Oh, no, the whole thing is different. The tree's got life in it. So you turn to your New Testament and you read about men starting out as babes in Christ. Ah, here's something different. You see, the difference between a babe and a lump, a heap of chaff is this. That can never develop, he can never grow, but oh, a babe, he can't speak, he can't think, he can't reason. But he's a babe, he's got life in him. He can develop, he can grow, and so he does. And John writes his first epistle to the children, to the young men, to the old men. There's an advance, there's a development there is a growth always possible in a tree. And to me, that's one of the most glorious things about this Christian life. The more I go on it, the more thrilled in it I am. Oh, the vastness of the knowledge. Just one brings one's little mind to these mighty epistles of the Apostle Paul and see him ending what Thomas Carlyle called the immensities and infinities. This truth of God that you may be able to comprehend, he says, with all saints everywhere. What is the breadth and length and depth and height? And to know the love of God which passes knowledge. What is this? It's a never-ebbing sea. And one goes on out into it ever forward. Into the depths, the deep things of God. And one grows in knowledge. And one grows in grace. And there is endless, infinite, eternal possibility of development and of advance. Oh, the difference between the godly life and the ungodly life. The difference between the tree and the chaff. The difference between life and death. Something inert, lifeless, inanimate, and that which is full of life. But I must let you go. The last thing, of course, one must refer to is the fruit. Never any fruit yet coming from chaff. Chaff is always useless. And the ungodly life is a life of chaff. It never gives a man real satisfaction. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts a question to the Romans. He reminds them that they were once sinners and slaves of sin. And he puts this tremendous question that I would put to everybody tonight who is listening to me. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. You didn't have any. Then he asks his question. 
What fruit have you then? In those things whereof now you are ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Listen, says Paul. Tell me. What real fruit did you have in those things when you were doing them? Did they give you real satisfaction? Did they give you real joy? Did they give you true and clean and real happiness? Did they give you anything then? I know, he says, you're ashamed of them now. But did they even give you any satisfaction then? And their end is death. How true it is. The life of sin never gives satisfaction. We think it's going to. The moment you think you've had it, you've lost it. There's nothing to feed upon. There's nothing left. Nothing to ruminate upon. There's no real value. What does lust really give you? What does greed really give you? What does ambition really give you? Never. It's never satisfied. The ambitious man is never satisfied. He always wants more. And he's afraid somebody else is coming up. Afraid he's going to be robbed of it. Never peace, never joy, never real happiness. It's chaff. Oh, that hymn that we sang just now puts it very perfectly. I lay in dust. Life's glory dead. He'd come to see the truth about himself, that it was a life of chaff. And so as I leave you this evening, I ask you this final question. What is the nature, the character of your life? Is it chaff or is it like a tree? This is what the Bible tells us. All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man as the goodness of grass. The grass withereth. The flower thereof falleth away. That's it. All the glory of men. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all the beauty, all that wealth here gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory, lead but to the grave. And many a man who's lived for this world and its glory, and thought he's achieved a great deal, finds at the end he's got nothing but a heap of chaff. What the world is living for tonight is nothing but chaff. Think of the people who've been feeding today on the filth of the law courts in their Sunday newspapers who are living to drink and to gamble and to indulge other things. What have they got? What's left? What do they have at the end? It's nothing but refuge. Chaff. I lay in dust. Life's glory dead. And that's what it always comes to. All flesh is but as grass. And all the glory of men as the flower of grass. The wind of the Lord bloweth upon it, and the result is the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Like the chaff, it's carried away by the wind, and nothing and nothing at all remains. That is the life of the ungodly, my friends. 
The glittering prizes of this world are nothing but chaff. They've got nothing to give the soul, nothing to give the spirit, nothing to give real joy and lasting peace or a solid treasure. Man is chasing bubble. The moment he touches it, it's exploded in its hand. There's nothing there. He's got nothing but a heap of refuse. The kernel, the life, the grain is gone. There's nothing but the remains, the ruin, the refuse. That's men without God. That's men as he is left to himself. The Son of God came, as I've reminded you, to seek and to save that which is lost. God willing, I'm going to try to tell you next Sunday night something of how he does this and how he gives us this life. But I want you to know before you leave, because you may not be here, you may have gone before next Sunday. If you find there's nothing but refuse and chaff left in your life tonight, if there's nothing of the man that God originally made, oh, cry out to God, confess it to him. Acknowledge it, don't try to defend yourself. Say, I'm nothing, create me anew. And he'll do it. He sent his son into this world to save chaff. Refuge, the ruins of the soul, and he has power sufficient to do it. He has borne the guns of punishment and the guilt of our sin for being chaff, whereas we were meant to be trees. He's died for you, and thus he exposes you to the life-giving and new-creating power of God. Through the blessed Holy Spirit. Oh, face the facts. Acknowledge the truth. And cast yourself upon the mercy and the love of God. In Jesus Christ our Lord. And be ye saved.